Uh, today we are ending this small study in the book of Genesis. So for the last three months, really, we've been going through this, the beginning of Genesis. Uh, we, uh, we've been doing these 11 chapters. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to reflect and share out loud what it is maybe that God's taught you, something that you didn't know before, uh, something that uh, the Spirit has been encouraging you on as we've gone through this study. So you're going to have a chance to share because we do these things where we read the Scriptures as a whole group together, and then often we just move on. So we'll take a little moment, and you're going to reflect what it is that God actually did in us as we opened and read His words. But while you're thinking about that, because putting you on the spot will be awkward silence, I'm going to recap what's happened uh, in the beginning, we talked about the origins of joy, that God created the cosmos as a temple to himself for his never-ending constant praises, that the most distant of galaxies and the most microscopic organisms are all created, divinely put in place by God, that we would praise him and that all things would praise him. Uh, we talked about the creation of humanity, that, that God made man and woman with a purpose to reflect the image of God, to be fruitful, to multiply, to cultivate, to subdue the earth, and that God was with them uh, in joy in life. We talked about the creation of rest and Sabbath. We spent a whole day uh, talking and reflecting on how in a world of exhaustion that we know now, we can't even fathom a God at rest, but there was a God at rest who invites us into that. We talked about the creation of the garden, that, that alongside all of this, God also creates just this intimate place for him to be known by the first humans, that he made uh, male and female unique and different and of the sameness and all of this wonderful stuff. Uh, and then we talked about the origin of sorrow, of sin coming into the story of Adam and Eve, uh, choosing and stepping into this disobedience that, that caused immediately just intense shame and guilt. It was like crippling for them. And they were hiding even because that's what always happens. And then we saw God coming and drawing them out and asking them questions, uh, pulling them back into relationship. After that, we, we saw uh, God issuing curses and consequences, and Josh spoke beautifully about how the blessings, though, that God issues out, even in the curses, just far outweigh what was happening on that day, the promise of never-ending eternal blessing. Uh, we talked about uh, the murder of, of Abel, uh, Cain being so religious and wanting everything to just be so like uh, him doing this big exchange with God and getting what he wants and it, the anger that swelled up with him, him murdering his brother, going further away. Uh, last week we talked about the destruction of all things through a flood and, and God's wrath and his goodness and wrath and how he restores after wrath. And so that's what we've been doing. That was you're like, oh, we could have done that in a few minutes, but we did it over like nine weeks. And so I'm going to ask you again, what has stood out to you as we've studied, as we've reflected, uh, as God has spoken to us through his word? Uh, and you guys can share out loud and stuff. Yeah. Some 
dark. There's a dark next to them. Mm -hmm. and, and the flood was... People died. Everyone died. Yeah. And um, I've been challenged by like, looking at that and not just wanting to see the cute story part, but then also encourage that God can handle that. He doesn't... He's not a God that we have to just be upbeat and positive about. Like, he has a... He knows the darkness, and he has a plan to conquer the darkness. Um, and so it's encouraging to look at that and be faced with that, I think, for the first time, personally. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Danielle. Anybody else? That's awesome. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, Evan. <laughs> I like that. Joy is God who likes plants. It's, 
evidently, self-evidently true. It's like, look at all the plants. Yeah, look at the bird of paradise. Like, that's a weird plant. God must delight in that. Yeah. Anybody else? <laughs> we all are, yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks, Casey. Awesome. Well, we're going to continue, uh, and we're going to read the, the last story of the corruption narratives. Uh, that's really what they are. You have the creation narratives. They're really wonderful. And then you have these escalating corruption narratives. And this is uh, what's familiarly called the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, another one of my weird, dorky things, it should be the Tower of Babylon, but the translators that did the King James Version, who were actually really wonderful at what they did, uh, they're like, Babel, they're trying to play with words. It's really Babylon, so that comes up all throughout the Bible. Anyway, that's not that important. I just wasted time. <laughs> Genesis 11, uh, verse 1, that uh, says this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. And Shinar is Babylon, so see? Right. Anyway, verse 3. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city so that, they, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see this city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. 
And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And you might be, why does it say Babel and confused in Hebrew is almost the same word. It's like a really clever wordplay. That's why it's called confused, uh, because they were confused. Uh, What happens in this whole corruption narrative thing is they, people, keep going eastward. Uh, Adam and Eve, when they leave the garden, they go east, right? Like east of Eden. And they, they settle really right outside of it. Almost like every day they're looking and they're seeing. Like, oh yeah, that was the garden that we used to have. They just go a little east. Uh, and then Cain, you know, he murders Abel and he gets sent to the land of Nod, which is further east. And then there's the whole Noah story where they're just floating around and then settle in. And what we see that when the story picks up again is that people keep moving further and further east to this uh, plain area that doesn't have rocks or anything really like that. It's just a highly raised, beautiful plain, you know, like Kansas or Iowa or something like that. And that's where they settle. And what's happening through all of this is that humanity keeps moving further and further away from Eden. Humanity is going further away from the garden. Uh, It's a physical thing that they're doing in the narrative of like, look how far they are now from that beautiful garden where they knew who they were and they knew one another and there was no shame and grief and anything. They're moving further away physically, further away spiritually, further away relationally. Now, there's this strong kind of temptation and pull uh, into moving into this sort of belief that things are moving well beyond repair. Uh, It's something that, like, when I was a pastor in uh, in Portland, I'm still a pastor in Los Angeles, and it happens here too, but in Portland, we would have all these people that would leave home. Like, Portland's a city. uh, There was uh, the writer who wrote Fight Club, the novel, also wrote this other book called Fugitives and Refugees, and it was about how the city of Portland was really just this gathering of people from the Midwest and the East Coast who would come out there because they could not return home. And they all had this sense and this belief of, I can never go back because what I've done is too bad, who I am too is too bad, I could never be accepted, I, it's beyond repair. And that's really the temptation for us as we read these narratives to be like, humanity is getting too far, like we're too broken. Uh, it's one of our core even beliefs and griefs. Uh, it's one of the fi- foundational drivers of how we operate in this world is thinking within our hearts and our souls, things are too messed up. Things are just way too messed up. There's no going back. Things are too bleak. Nothing could change me. Nothing could change this situation. This is reality. And that's why as it goes further east, we begin to have that kind of sense. But as the narrative unfolds, uh, you know, it can, it can almost feel like this is my picture and it might not help you. But it's like if you go to Palos Verdes and you hike that hike, you know, on the cliffs. Anyone do that? And there's these beautiful trees. And it's like the the beginning of the story is like humanity is just sitting there under the shade of one of those trees, watching this beautiful sunset and the seagulls and everything like that. And then with Adam and Eve, they they leave God at the tree and they go to the edge of the cliff. You're like, this is more precarious. And then as the story goes on, they fall off the cliff, but they're just sort of dangling, holding on to the top of the, the cliff, you know, uh, like right before Mufasa dies kind of thing, you know, just clinging on. 
And as the story goes on, they, like humanity begins to slip further and further away, and it seems like now we've lost all grip on God, all grip on what was. That beautiful thing is now a disaster. And it's easy to see the downward spiral. Uh, and though the, the downward spiral we might read on the surface is one of death and violence and human brokenness, like they're getting more and more corrupt, it's really about, the, these corrupt narratives are really about a growing gap between God and, and humanity, a growing disconnection, a growing disorientation. And so we might be dis, you know, tempted to despair. Uh, we should make ourselves close to God again. Let's make something to make ourselves close to God once again. Uh, we must get him back on our side. We need to regain the garden. Let's remake it. Let's do it. Let's build for ourselves this garden and then get God to come and move back in. Uh, but here's the really good news. Do you want it at the top or at the end? You know, uh, I'm going to give it to you at the top, at the beginning, not like I normally do where you're like, well, is there any good news? No, right at the top. Despite all of this, God keeps moving towards humanity. He keeps coming for us. From the foundations of the earth, Paul says, God chose to give every spiritual blessings to those who would be brought into Christ. Like from, like from the very beginning, God doesn't say, oh, you're moving away, like, a, like humanity's on this train going far, far away from him. No, God is in constant pursuit. They keep going further, further east, but God keeps showing up. He keeps revealing, he keeps pursuing, he keeps making his name great, and that is profound good news. You should just know that right up front, right? But now, this story of Babel. Uh, what's the deal with this, right? That is pretty strange, especially if you think things are escalating, you know, last week's pretty dramatic, you know, a big flood. And now it seems like people just have a good language and they're building this thing. Uh, it's this final chapter, but like, what is it that they were actually doing that's so bad? Like, how is this the low point? Um, how is this lower than the flood or lower than Cain murdering his brother? How is this lower than Eve and Adam, like, taking and eating and hiding? How is this getting, like, the story unhinged? And you might think, okay, well, maybe God just really hates towers and architecture. You know, like, he loves plants, but towers, too far, you know? Uh, he really must not like uh, Abu Dhabi. He must really dislike, you know, uh, New York, like, these skyscrapers. God's against architecture, Except, like, throughout the Psalms and throughout the whole story, it's, there's all of these things of the, the image of the watchtower, the people being able to see and have a perspective on danger that's coming. It doesn't seem like God's really against people being in high places or even building things. You think, oh, okay, well, he must hate cities. Like, that's, he's really upset because they're in the city, and they've built this city. Urbanization obviously, is the issue. I don't know, you know? It's like, and also you might say, oh, well, they didn't scatter. They were supposed to spread out. I don't know. The command was really a blessing, and it says, be fruitful and multiply, almost like what you would do at a toast at a wedding, you know? Maybe you have many, many children kind of thing. 
not really this intense command. Also, they're being very fruitful and they're being very multiplicatory, right? Like there's lots of them. There's nothing really within that about, no, every human needs to touch every square part of the earth. And it's like, God actually kind of likes cities, it seems like. When the people of Israel finally come in uh, to their land and they're, they're experiencing the promise, they build this city, the city of David, Zion, Jerusalem, that has the temple in it, has streams gushing from it, and everyone's like, yeah, this is the good place. In fact, the word Zion just keeps being used over and over again for the place of blessing and peace and relationship with God. I'm not sure... He doesn't like cities. I don't think he's like, ah, urbanization. Let's give it to them. Let's make them not be able to talk to each other. Maybe it's, you're like, ah, oh, it's because they wanted to make a name for themselves. You know, like being too prideful, trying to be famous. Shouldn't try to be famous, right? That one kind of sticks. You're like, ah, oh, yeah. Like, don't make a name for yourself. Don't like be boastful. We should all be humble. Except... Uh, it's one of the prime blessings that God gives Abraham literally a few verses later. He says, you know, come and follow me. I'm going to show you this land, and I'm going to make your name great. Like the same word, the same syntax, the same phrase of this kind of motivation of Abraham. Like, yeah, I should, I'm going to make a name for myself. Even throughout all of the, the history of, of Israel, they're having these people that have these names, even these collective names of generations, like uh, the generation of Jacob and uh, Isaac and Abraham. Those are words that are used about these are pillars of the faith, and that is a good thing. Uh, it's never talked about as, yeah, that, that Jacob guy made a name for himself. It's like, no, I think we're actually supposed to even leave a mark. Like, you might think there's sometimes this, this current concept of, like, we should all just be anonymous, avatars, you know, not even our real names. But I think God actually calls us and births us into this world. We have this command to cultivate and subdue the earth. Maybe, like, we should leave our mark uh, and, the, and, and leave it collectively. These people are like, let's, let's like, make, you know, a, a name for us as a city, not even, there's no individual pride. There's even no name of a character in this part. So I'm not sure it's so much like, oh, they're really prideful. Yeah. I think the real reason is a little bit like stranger than all of those things. I think it's a little, little odd, and I think it's really profound. Uh, in verse 3, it says, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and let's bake them thoroughly. And so they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And what you're reading there is a profound technological advancement that these people have come to through a cultivating and a stewarding of the earth. Probably like the fourth millennia BC, like 3000 to 4000 BC, when, these, when people figure out how to make a brick however they want. Before that, it's all finding stones and breaking stones into small pieces. Now, especially in this part where there are no stones, they figure out how can we cut dirt, put water to it, shape it, and put it in a wood-burning fire and harden it and make it to where we can do whatever we want with it in whatever shape possible. Uh, this is what they're doing. And then if you, as you uh, read, even in the context of like, oh, so they're, they're building this city in this fourth century 
4,000 BC. And as they're doing it, they're building this tower and this city. And what you have to do is kind of come into some understanding of what's actually happening in this environment. They've made bricks, and now they're putting things together. And they're building a city. And a city at that time wasn't like how we think of it as dwelling places. Uh, even there's you know, hundreds of sites like this across you know, the Middle East and Mesopotamia where they're just really building together a communal gathering place, gathering place of, of public buildings, of grain, and mostly temples to worship gods. Like that's, it's really they're building this huge temple complex, to the, and each city would be devoted to a particular god that would do something for them. Uh, and so that's really uh, one of the things that's happening, and, and at this time, they're also building adjacent to these temple complexes, these huge stairway apparatus called ziggurats. Anyone, dove? I know Casey's been in this hole on Wikipedia. You can go into this hole on Wikipedia. But they're doing it, there's, even, there's over 30 uh, examples of this in the area where they are, and, and almost every scholar who studies this and archaeologist who looks into this is like, what we're seeing in this passage is this tower that's being built, this ziggurat stair system. Um, in this urban center. There's actually a king of the time in this era uh, built one of these. His name's Warad Sin. He was the king of Larsa, and he built this temple, and this is what they said about him. They said, he made it as high as the mountain. He made it touch uh, the head above in heaven. On account of his deeds, the gods Nana and Nigal rejoiced, and may they grant to him a destiny of life, of long reign, a firm foundation. So what you had is these kings and these rulers building huge temples where you would have all of these sacrifices to these gods that would make the gods really happy, and next to them they built these huge structures. Uh, and I have a cool picture of one. Yeah? It's been up there. <laughs> Thanks, kiddo. Uh, so go to the other one before. Okay, so this is really, the computers are cool. This is a, a rendering. Uh, and what they would do is they, they built them like this. Let me explain what they're like. They're like a pyramid, same essential structure, except there's nothing inside. The pyramids are filled with gold and dead people and stuff, like you've seen the mummy. These are just filled with dirt. They just pile dirt and dirt and dirt on the inside. They were built for specific deities next to specific temples. As I said, nearly 30 of these discovered across uh, ancient Babylon, Mesopotamia, now Iran, and Iraq. Each of them at the very top would have these small bedroom suite apartments. Uh, and at the top, it there would be uh, beds and the, the finest of, of cushions, uh, pillows. Uh, they would have little kitchens, little dining areas. It was like a little apartment uh, that they had at the very top. And there weren't any rituals or practices that humans would do on these. They would build them, and then that would be it. What they would do instead, it was like completely off limits to any human. What they imagined was happening is that the gods were using that as a pathway to come to earth and to come to the temple and to see them and to be happy with them and maybe give them good stuff. 
And the reason they had the apartment sort of thing at the top was because they imagined, well, the gods are coming from far away, and we've kind of built up this thing, and they would do all these sacrifices so the smells of it all could go to the gods, and then the gods would be like, oh, let's go visit those people. But they imagined, oh, but the gods might get tired. They need to be pampered. They need to be cared for. And so they had this little apartment so the gods could take a break along the way. I've, like, as I've studied this, I'm actually an, an introvert, and so I've kind of fantasized, like, if my parents could build one of those for me, when I go visit, like, that would be amazing, right? Like, a place for the gods to get away, to be pampered, to rest like a pit stop along the way. This is what they were building. Uh, one of the, the ancient Babylonian writers describes it this way. This is their definition of this ziggurat. It's a temple which links heaven and earth. So they imagine that it's some sort of portal between the, the realm of the gods and them as just mere humans. So it was this stairway structure that didn't just represent something, it was something for them, where the gods that they worship would travel to them. Its sole purpose was to create this convenient method for them to come and experience some of their amenities. You know, they'd put food out and stuff so that they could come and, and have a good time hosting the special gods. Uh, so just kind of in summary, because I know that's a lot, and you're like, I didn't know I signed up for that this morning. The Tower of Babel is really this project of this temple complex that included a ziggurat, which was designed to make it convenient for a god to come and enjoy the temple that they built for him so that the people could worship that God, and then receive some benefit from them. Like, that is what's happening. So then, what is their big offense? And why is this, like, the end of the road of the corruption narratives? Because what they were doing is making God, their whole concept of God, was now being twisted and morphed into their image into what they could conceive of. It was God on their terms. We build this thing for you. We created this whole thing for you. So now the gods or God himself has to come and do and be how we want him to do and be. It wasn't just, uh, it wasn't us being made in God's image anymore. Instead, it was us making God in our image. Uh, God with weaknesses and dysfunctions of like needing to be pampered and needing to be encouraged to come and visit. It wasn't just idolatry of like they created these things and began to worship them. It was actually a complete shift in a comprehension of, of who God is. What did the people do together uh, when they gathered and they could talk and they could make some sort of schemes? They infantilized, they demeaned, they twisted the very concept of God. God needs to be pampered. He needs to be fed. He needs to be clothed. He needs a pit stop along their hard journey. God needs to be manipulated and patronized so that he'll do stuff for us. Uh, one of my favorite movies is this movie called Waiting for Guffman. It's a Christopher Guest mockumentary, and it's a deep cut. I'm, I'm sure none of you have seen it. Sweet. Uh, it's, a, it's a comedy. But there's a small town in the Midwest somewhere, and there's a small, like, volunteer theater group, 
and there's this big uh, critic from New York that they're convinced his name is Guffman is going to come and visit them. As long as they keep writing letters, if they do this big production, if they buy him the right hotel room, if they get him the right tickets, and the whole story is kind of built around when he comes, he's going to see us, and we're going to be famous, and it's going to be all really wonderful. That's basically how they approach God, and maybe how we approach God too. Or if you imagine celebrities that we have now are our idols or icons, and we just think, if I could just get in the same room with them, it'd be like their fairy famous dust will get on me, and I'll become a successful person. But to get them in the room, we've got to work through all of the channels. We've got to make sure that they're happy and satisfied. And then when they come in the room, they really need to be well taken care of, right? It's the same concept, and that's what they're doing, not with just some person who's good at music, but really God himself. And God sees no turning back. He's like Adam and Eve, they disobeyed. Cain murdered. Noah's day saw constant corruption. This is a different level. It's a God distortion. God being twisted beyond recognition as the one true God. They deluded God, as one commentator said. What they did is they took God and they diluted him. And there's four ways that they, that they diluted him and that we do too. Uh, they re- diluted God by redistributing power. Uh, they took some of his power and they gave it to themselves. We're equals. The whole, the whole system was a system of equality. That God and them were you know, part of the same transaction, coming to the table, doing a negotiation like anyone would. That God also has weaknesses that have to be mitigated and figured out. They also deluded God by restricting his autonomy. God can't come and do whatever he wants. He's going to do what we want, when we want, where we want him to do it. And he's going to have to because we did these things. Because we set it up, because we built the stairway from heaven to earth, we built the portal, now he's going to do what we want him to do. Uh, we figured it all out. Now he's going to bless our stuff, you know? It's one of the key, like, markers, I think, of, like, churches. We do this all the time. We're in Christian life. We're like, I've decided that this is what God is going to do. I've made my business plan. I've made my nonprofit plan. And then we go to God in prayer and say, hey, could you give us some seed money to do my plan for you? Because we're, you know, changing his autonomy, We dilute God by regulating his power. You can do these things and these things only. Like what they wanted was a God who would just make the rain come. Not a God who knew them and knew their intimate needs, related to them, cared for them. Just a God who makes the rain come. Or just a God that gives fertility. Or just a God that uh, helps the cows get fatter. Regulating what he can do. They also deluded God by rewriting his, his redemption. So they decided, we're going to take matters into our own hands. He makes the world, and that's all right, but we're going to make it right again. We built this thing. We've, there's this huge gap between us and God. And so what we've done is we've built the tower for God to come to us. Their image of God is he's weak. He needs to be manipulated. He needs to be pampered. He needs to be directed. Like, God, if we don't help him out, he's not going to know where to go. Like, imagine, like, the intelligence that they thought that the gods had. They won't find us unless we build this massive monstrosity. He has to be conjoled and begged to come. 
And so what happens is, instead of seeing God as other, they make God just like them. I mean, he sounds just like a, a, a person, right? God is a, a normal person. We pull him into ourselves. Uh, Calvin Miller, who's a, a pastor, but really he's a better poet than a pastor, uh, says this. This is one of his poems. He says, The more the gods become like men, the easier it is for men to believe in the gods. When both have human appetites, the rogues may worship the rogues. What he's talking about is the fact that when we make God look just like us, it's so much easier to worship them. It's so much more easy to believe in a God that's just like me. But then when our gods have human appetites for greed and lust and all of those other things, we're just caught worshiping rebellion over and over again. Humanity will collapse upon itself without a true picture of God. If we don't know God, if we don't see him clearly, humanity will collapse in on itself. Ultimately, uh, one of the ways that I've thought about this is that the Tower of Babel in the city was made for like an imaginary friend, not the living God, the maker of all things. So hopefully you're wondering now, who is God really then? I mean, that'd be helpful. Uh, in Job, I'm not going to do the whole Job thing, but in Job, uh, there's a play basically at the beginning of God and, and Job and his life kind of going out of spiral, but then the bulk of the whole book is this poem and this back and forth with Job being like, but tell me why. You know, this happened. Explain to me, God. Job coming with like, I know I put the friends away, but you and I have a lot to talk about. Uh, and then what happens eventually is, is God speaks back to Job. And he says this in Job 38, verse 3. He says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So this is what God tells him after a while. Brace yourself like a man. That's a good line to give Thad sometime. Brace yourself. I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to answer me. And then these are the questions. He says, where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across the world? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, where were you? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, he's talking to the sky and the oceans, here is where your proud waves must halt. Then he tells, asks Job some more stuff. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are demeaned by their light, and their unpraised arms are broken. 
He says, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? I could go on and on. There's like 10 more chapters of this. God says, we're not the same. And for you, one of the most important things that you could understand about life and existence is that you and God are not the same. You don't play at the same level. You don't operate in the same rooms. Like, you are not like God. And he is not like you. This doesn't sound like a God who needs a pit stop and a comfy pillow on his way to us. Doesn't, look like, doesn't sound like a God who really needs to be cajoled into doing something. Psalm 96.6 says, the glory and the majesty surround God. Power and beauty fill his earth. So that's what he's like. He's completely other. There's also this whole character dimension. There's this time where Moses is wanting to know who God really is, not just his name, but his character. And so God comes to Moses in a mountain in a storm, and he says, this is what God tells him. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God says, I maintain love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is not like you in the other ways either. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, overwhelmingly faithful. Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond our reach. So that's, God is completely other, right? And here's the thing that, that I, I, God's like, they can't keep doing this. They can't keep distorting their view of me over and over again. They can't keep exhausting themselves trying to build a highway for me to come visit them. Because it's, it's exhausting, right? Trying to build a whole system so that God will do something for you. Like legalism, uh, like uh, naming it and claiming it, and just having good vibes. Having good vibes and, and manifestations of the future is exhausting. Like my friends who do that are tired of manifesting a future. Because God and us, we're not the same. Here's what's beautiful, though. There's this huge gap, but God comes for us. He sees our exhaustion, and God's like, you don't need to build this thing for me to come to you. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, it was for the joy set before him that he came and endured the cross. He was, God's like happy to come to us. Besides being other and majestic and glorious, core to God's nature is his advancement and relationship towards all of us. God came to Adam and Eve, even while they were hiding. God came to Cain, even while he was a murderer. God came to Noah, even though the world was corrupt. God even comes to Babel, like, you see, like God comes and sees but God doesn't live in things built by human hands. He's completely other. He doesn't come from a different dimension. God is here. 
The, this whole section, the Genesis 1 starts with God building this temple, this world where he dwells in it. The psalmist writes about how the world is God's and everything in it. He is here. He doesn't need stairs. He doesn't need a ramp. He doesn't need an elevator. He is with us. The desire of his heart is a union with humanity, and he doesn't need manipulating and arm-twisting to do it. Like, some of us have a picture that God begrudgingly does all of this, and he delights in it. Philippians 2 is really about Paul using Jesus as an example for humility, but it's also just a picture of what Jesus actually did. It says that Jesus didn't see the the glory and the remaining uh, in that divine spot, something that was worth holding on to. Instead, he desired to come to earth. It says that he, he descended into the very nature of a human. He took on the sin and the death. He endured. He was obedient to the cross so that he might be raised again and we might know God and be restored back to God. Jesus didn't need any manipulating or being pampered in this final week of his life that we'll celebrate next week. God chose to come and redeem and restore all broken things. It's even, um, there's this great story uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Horse and His Boy. It's the best one. If you've been here a while, I've quoted it a lot. If you're new, you found something new. It's the story of this boy, this orphan child who has this uh, terrible kind of adoptive father. He's kind of punished. It's kind of like the Harry Potter story, so that's where she stole parts of it. And she... uh, and this, this boy, is, is, uh, he loses everything. There's all these moments where he's terrified and he's running through the, through the fields. There's lions howling at him as he goes. His life, it's really the story of, a, of an incredible suffering downward spiral for a child, like a 10-year-old child. But at the end of it, he comes face to face with Aslan and he realizes that he's a prince, like that the kingdom's are his to inherit. Like he's the rightful ruler of the, of the whole kingdom that he grew up in. And he, he's asking and he's pleading with Aslan, why weren't you there for me, right? Some of us do that. Was I not good enough? Did I not worship Aslan enough? Was I not looking enough? And Aslan tells him, he's like, no, no, I was with you always. Who do you think breathed into that boat so that you could come ashore? It was my breath. Who do you think the lions were that were howling as you rode through the night? It was me protecting you. Aslan was with the boy the whole time. Something you must know is that while God is completely not like us, he operates at a different level. He has come to you and God is with you. So don't settle for miniature gods, but rejoice in the one true God. And then you will live in peace and courage. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your death, your resurrection, that it is once and for all the picture that you are not too far from us. Um, Yeah. Thank you, Lord for making yourself known, 
intimately known. Thank you for not being a God like us. God, we want to rejoice and we want to live in that peace as a church. I thank you, Lord. Amen.